Welcome to HR Matters, a podcast to learn more about people topics that impact your organization. I'm your host, Diana Barrera. For over 20 years, I have been helping businesses get better results and higher ROI by navigating complex people's matters strategically. Today, our guest is Jeffrey Kimmel, a partner with Ackerman LLP, a law firm with 700 attorneys across the country, and is co-chair of the Ackerman Wage and Hour Practice Group. Jeff represents businesses in matters relating to wage and hour law, as well as wrongful termination cases, and regularly counsels employers on day-to-day human resources and legal compliance issues. Jeffrey is also a certified mediator and arbitrator and president of the Westchester Human Resources Management Association. Jeff is also co-host of the recently launched Ackerman Angle, Legal Insight on Wage and Hour Law podcast. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you, and I'm glad to be here. So, Jeff, what is in the scope of wage and hour law? Wage and hour law is a sector of labor and employment law. So labor employment law is the umbrella area that we as employment lawyers practice in which covers discrimination cases, right? Wrongful termination cases, retaliation cases, equal pay cases, traditional labor dealing with unions and collective bargaining. That's all under employment law, right? Within that also is wage and hour law, which is the law of complying with rules and laws and regulations concerning how an employee is paid for the hours that they work. So under that comes overtime laws. We're going to talk about the tip credit laws that might apply to some degree, pay transparency laws, equal pay can be either be sort of considered a wage and hour issue or a discrimination issue, but things that have to do with how an employer pays wages to their employee and also how they paper the amounts and the ways they're paying employees. For instance, in New York State, there's wage notices and wage statements that an employer is required to give an employee concerning how much they're going to be and how much they are being paid. That comes under wage and wage and hour law too. How did you get into this? How did you become interested in this area of the law? So with respect to employment law, generally I was very interested from the first time I went to the time I went to law school and started taking classes in it when I was in law school, you know, a million and a half years ago, I worked for a, an attorney who was a plaintiff side employment lawyer. And I thought the law was really interesting. And to me, I found it much more interesting than contract law or corporate law because you're dealing with humans, you're dealing with interesting issues. The law at that time was very evolving very quickly. And there were a lot of changes and developments in law as there continue to be. So I found it to be very interesting. And then eventually I I went into employment law and private practice, migrated more to the defense side that I'm on now representing employers. And then with respect to the wage and hour part of that, that really was more that I just started taking on a lot of these cases. We started seeing more of them come down where people, whether it's an overtime exemption case or misclassification of somebody as an independent contractor instead of an employee which implicates wage and hour issues. 
I started handling them. I started handling a lot of big class actions in that area. So it became known for handling these type of things. But I also do handle the other types of employment law. But this is just one area that I have a known specialty in. What are the implications of an exempt versus a non-exempt employee classification? And what are the legal risks of misclassification? Sure. So while most of your listeners know this already, just to lay the table for it, set the table, uh, exempt classification means that an employee qualifies as a salaried employee that is not entitled to receive the overtime premium pay for hours worked over 40, whereas a non-exempt employee is paid hourly and entitled under the law to overtime premium of time and a half for each hour worked over 40 each week. Um, There are other requirements under state and city laws that require employers to do certain things with respect to non-exempt employees as well, but overtime is really the big uh, distinguishing factor between exempt and non-exempt employees. So, the determination as to whether someone is properly classified as exempt has really two parts to it. Um, there is a salary threshold, so a minimum compensation somebody has to be has to earn in order to be, to be deemed an exempt from overtime employee. Um, and then there are duties tests. So the, the under federal law, which is the Fair Labor Standards Act. Um, the salary thresholds, the minimum amount somebody has to earn to be considered an exempt employee is $684 a week or $35,568 annually. Each state also has their own variations of these laws. So in New York State, for instance, to be an exempt employee, exempt from overtime obligations, you have to earn a salary of at least $58,500, much higher than the federal minimum. So that's that's A, that's the salary threshold. Then B, there's a duties test for each category of what somebody can be considered an exempt employee, things like executive exemption, administrative exemption, professional exemption, exemption things like that. So uh, when employers are trying to determine whether a particular employee should be exempt from overtime obligations or not exempt from overtime obligations. They have to both look at what that person's being paid as a threshold matter and then whether they qualify as exempt under the duties tests. But going back to your original question, what are the implications of, of non-compliance? Um, essentially, the, the, the concerns, if you're not properly pay, paying an employee overtime, as a non-exempt employee, a couple of things can happen. One, you might get a Department of Labor audit, in which case the Department of Labor, whether it's Federal Department of Labor or New York State or whatever state you happen to be in, their, their Department of Labor will come in and do an audit. And if they determine that you're not paying overtime properly to your employees, you're going to get dinged by the Department of Labor and they're going to hit you for unpaid overtime amounts they're also going to likely assess penalties against you, which are generally 100% of the amount owed. So if, if the company is deemed to owe $100,000 in unpaid overtime, they're going to get a penalty of another $100,000 as liquidated damages. And there can be interest assessed at that as well. So there could be significant exposure for an employer that way. 
The other way, which can sometimes be even worse than a Department of Labor audit, although they're comparable, is, is a private lawsuit, right? So if you're not properly paying an employee, that employee may get a lawyer. And there's lots of plaintiff side, employee side lawyers out there looking for clients, looking for work. They might get a, a, a lawyer and they might sue you, but they might not only sue you on an individual basis, they could potentially also sue you in a class action, depending on the size of, of the employer, in which case you're also looking at all that unpaid overtime. You're also looking at liquidated damages of 100%. And that's often the case under various state laws as well as federal, although you can't get double charged for that. It's one time of 100%. Plus, on top of that, the, the Fair Labor Standards Act, the federal law, and many of these state laws will also require an employer who's deemed to have violated the law to have to pay the, the employee's attorney's fees. So you'll not only end up having to defend this lawsuit, pay your attorney, pay the unpaid amounts, pay liquidated damages, but you'll also be required potentially to pay a hefty amount for the other side's attorney's fees. So those are really the, that's the exposure that an employer has if they don't properly comply with the you know, exemptions from overtime. You mentioned that in addition to the salary threshold, you have the administration and duties test, something like that. And that's the area that I see managers struggle the most, right? Can you elaborate a little bit about that area? Right. So there's several different categories of exempt employees. It's executive exemption, administrative exemption, computer-related occupations, outside salespeople, uh, and there's a highly compensated employee exemption too for employees that are paid over $107,000 a year. So there's a lot of different pitfalls. There are a lot of ways that employers can, can misclassify somebody. One of the areas where we do see employers get it wrong a lot is administrative assistance or say executive assistance to a CEO or CFO or COO of a company, a lot of times these type of administrative assistants are sort of always on call, right? They answer to somebody who's very, you know, very important, very busy, doing, doing a lot, probably working seven days a week and not getting paid overtime for it. <laughs> and they expect their assistant to be available to them at all times and all hours. And they don't want to pay them overtime right, for being available to them 24-7. So oftentimes they try to classify or they want to classify these types of assistants as being exempt from overtime. And sometimes they can be, but it's not as straightforward as some people in that position might think, which is, well, I'm paying them a salary. They're doing really important work for me. So they're exempt from overtime. Uh, it's not that simple. Just because you're paying somebody a salary doesn't mean they're exempt from overtime. They have to fit mm -hmm. the duties test. And somebody like an executive assistant would really have to have a lot of discretion in what they do on a daily basis in order to be deemed to be exempt. They'd have to be able to make really important decisions on their own on behalf of that executive that they're, that they're reporting to or they're supporting. Just that you, just the fact that you are say, supporting a very important person doesn't necessarily bring you high enough on the duties test to be an exempt employee. So we see that a lot. There are recent developments in the tip credit minimum wage world. Please tell us about it. Sure. 
So when we're talking about the tip credit, we're talking about federal, and again, many states have variations of this law, but starts with the federal law that says that if you are employing employees in the service industry or in a tipped occupation, meaning they regularly receive tips in exchange for services provided to customers, that you can pay them a lower minimum wage. So where the federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour right now, under the federal law, you can pay an employee $2.13 an hour so long as with their tips, they're earning at least $7.25 an hour. Different states have different variations of that. For instance, New York, the tip credit is only a fraction of what it is under federal law. So it's not $2.13 an hour. I think right now it's uh, $12.50 an hour for the $15 minimum wage in New York City. So the variation, it's different in each in each locality potentially. But essentially, so the tip credit allows you to pay employees in the hospitality industry, working in hotels, restaurants, whatever it might be, a lower minimum wage so long as they are earning tips in excess of the standard minimum wage. Now, traditionally, there's been something called the 80-20 rule with respect to workers in tipped occupations. And the idea behind that was that a lot of these workers may not always be involved in tipped occupation, in tipped services as part of their occupation, right? Somebody might be a restaurant worker working as a, a server, but then maybe for that restaurant also does some stocking work in the stock room or, you know, inventory work, that kind of thing, which is not a tipped occupation. So the 80-20 rule traditionally said that if you're doing that non-tipped occupation kind of work more than 20% of the time, your employer cannot pay you using the tip credit minimum wage. They need to pay you the full minimum wage for all of the time that you're working. Under the last administration, federal administration, the Trump administration, they did away with the 80-20 rule towards the end of the administration. So a very short period of time, they got rid of the 80-20 rule and they said, you could be, it's not, if you're in a tipped occupation, and you're doing other things that are not necessarily tipped activities, customer service activities, so long as you're generally doing tipped activities and you're earning more than the minimum wage, at least the minimum wage with your tips, we're not going to bother. We're not going to bother you, employer, with respect to this employee. You know, the 80-20 rule doesn't matter anymore. They're fine. With the new administration, the Biden administration, they have now scrapped the Trump rule and this went into effect just about the beginning, or very much the beginning of 2022, officially December 28th, 2021, essentially January 1, 2022. And this new version of the 80-20 rule came into effect. And this new version of the 80-20 rule divides the type of work an employee can do into three categories. And the three categories are traditionally tipped activities. That's one. Two, activities that support traditionally tipped activities. So you're not necessarily customer facing at that time dealing with the customer, but it might be setting tables before the restaurant opens or in between, uh, you know, if, you're, if you're a waiter or a server, in between customers or filling salt and pepper shakers or things like that that are not, they're supporting your activities as a tipped worker, but they're not directly tipped activities. So that's the second category. And the third category is 
services unrelated to the tipped activities at all, like sweeping the floor, or I said, working in the stock room or inventory, that kind of thing. So they took this 80-20 rule and they said that anytime at all you're working on non-directly tipped activities or non-supporting activities cannot be paid the tip credit minimum wage at all. You have to pay the full minimum wage for that. So an employer needs to be aware, this is where it gets important for employers, employers need to be aware of really what their service workers are doing at all times. Because if they spend 15 minutes helping in the, in the, in the stock room, right, or helping in the kitchen, that could be deemed to be that third category of not related to tipped activities. And they've got to pay them the full minimum wage for that 15 minutes of their day. Then they took the 20% part of it and they said, okay, if it's supportive of tipped activities for 20% of the time you're working, then that's okay. And you can still get paid the tip credit and wage for all that time. If it's for 30 minutes in a row, that's okay. But anything over 30 minutes of consecutive work that's not directly tipped work, so that's supporting work or that non related work, they've got to be paid anything over 30 minutes consecutive. They've got to get paid the full minimum wage. Okay. And then for anything that surpasses 20% in a week, they've got to be paid the full minimum wage. So I know this has gone on for a very long time, but no, no, but it's, it's a lot of tracking to do for an employer. And that's the challenge, right? So they made a very complicated rule. Some people say they made it. Some people might say they made that very complicated rule, complicated on purpose, but it's a very complicated rule. So now an employer has to find a way who has employees in the service industry that are tipped employees, they're paying a tip credit minimum wage to, they need to keep track of what that employee is doing every minute of the day that they're there, which is very complicated. And it makes it incredibly mm-hmm. burdensome on employers to, to get it right. And you know what I would say is not to not to shamelessly pitch services, but you need, if you're in that industry, you really need to make sure that you are dealing with really good HR people who can give you good Mm -hmm. guidance on how to make sure you're you're complying properly. And, you know, attorneys to look at your policies and procedures to -hmm. make sure that you're, you're fully in compliance. Um, Because again, you got this issue of being, you know, do a department labor audit or private lawsuits we talked about before. There are a lot of pitfalls there. It's relatively recent. They're still calling it the 80-20 rule. And it's really not an 80-20 rule mm-hmm. anymore, right? It's like an 80-20, 30-minute rule mm-hmm. with three different categories of what comes into the 20 minutes or the 30 minutes. So it's complicated. There's actually been a trend or sort of a agenda out there to do away with the tip credit altogether. People argue that the tip credit puts workers in difficult situations with respect to customers because their tips are so important to them that they have to put up with harassment or discrimination or not being treated well. And that, you know, because they're, they, they're not, you know, they, they have to rely on those tips. They, they can't do anything. They can't push back on, the, on customers or mm-hmm. being put in, in, in bad situations. So there's this agenda out there of getting rid of the tip credit and some think that this was made that complicated so that employers would just throw up their hands and say, it's not worth it. I'm just going to pay everybody the full minimum wage. 
A current trend is pay transparency regulation. What are you seeing on this? Right. So this is a this is a big trend. We've seen over the past couple of years, really, a lot of states, this is more of a state thing or municipalities as opposed to federal. A lot of states and cities are passing these laws that require some sort of pay transparency. And the thought behind that is the reason for that is they believe that with more transparency, there could be less pay discrimination. Right. It's trying to promote equal pay for equal work. And if you're saying this is what the job pays, then you can't pay somebody less because they're, you know, as a result of them being a minority or their gender or whatever it might be. There's really two different types of these pay transparency laws that we're seeing. One is, for instance, the law in California, which is that uh, applicants for a position must be provided with a pay scale, a pay range for the position they're applying for upon reasonable request by the applicant after an applicant has completed an initial interview with the employer. So at some point in the application interview process with these, these type of these laws, the employer has, can be compelled, can be required to say, oh, by the way, here's the range that we're looking for, or here's the range we're looking to pay, I should say. A slightly different variation on that is laws that require it to be given to the applicants immediately upon request, as opposed to after the first interview, which is what California's law says. And then there's a different category of pay transparency, which is in, in advertising the position. So New York City, just a year ago, passed a law that says that if you are posting for a position that's going to be based in New York or reporting into New York City, for that position in that posting, you have to give a salary range. And that's whether it's an internal you know, advertisement for the position or external, you have to give that salary range right up front in the, in the posting. So employers need to be aware of that. And one of the big challenges now, of course, is with all this remote work. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you're a Colorado based employer, for instance, and Colorado has a similar law to New York's, which says you have to, you have to publish what the salary range is when you are advertising or you're putting out promotions for a position. What if you're an employer based in Colorado, but you're advertising for a position that's going to be completely based in Washington state? The employee is going to be in Washington state. They're reporting to an office in Washington state, but you're like the headquarters in Colorado, right? Or if it's a worker who's in Washington state, but reporting into Colorado, right? So those are different scenarios that this new, this new normal, I guess we could say, uh, that we have, I hate using that term because I'm using it, but um, with all this remote work and virtual offices, you as an employer need to be very careful that you're aware of the different laws regarding pay transparency that may be implicated by where the employee is located or where they're reporting to or where their physical office might be, whether or not they come into that physical office. Uh, those are all things you have to kind of take into account and be aware of as an employer with these pay transparency laws. So Jeff, 
Uh, do you have any general recommendation for our listeners? Assuming the listeners are employers, HR professionals, in-house counsels, and all that, um, my advice is make sure that you are constantly up on all the new developments in law because it is constantly changing. Um, and there's, you know, constantly cases coming down that, that change the way the law is interpreted and how it applies. You have to have really robust human resources support as an employer. And within human resources, you have to have really good support from your attorneys and have attorneys that know what they're talking about and that specialize in the area that you're, that you're dealing with. Because if somebody is a general practitioner, it might be a terrific attorney, but if they're not up on the ins and outs of these things, you could end up in hot water. Uh, so really the, the advice to, 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 to your listeners is just stay current on the law, listen to your podcast, listen to my podcast, and <laughs> read, read the emails and the, and the publications that come in on these things. So where can people find you? Where can they uh, listen to your podcast? So with respect to my podcast, it's entitled The Ackerman, which is the name of my law firm, Ackerman Angle, uh, Legal Advice for on Wage and Hour Issues. So that's the podcast. And I can be found on the Ackerman website, A-K-E-R-M-A-N, or at my email address, which is jeffrey.kimmel at ackerman.com. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you, Diana. It's been a it's been a pleasure doing this. I'm glad we're able to to get together to 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 do this. Thank you for listening to today's episode of HR Matters. If you would like to get in touch with me, send an email to Diana at RevilloHR.com or by following the link in the show notes below. HR Matters is brought to you by Rebillo HR. You can find information on Rebillo Consulting Services on the website www.rebillohr.com.